Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Jesus goes on and says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your, fa your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, some of you reading with uh, King James translation would say, wait a minute, where's that part about? And thine is the kingdom and all that. Well, let me explain to you. The English Standard Version translated from the original, or not the original, but the closest to the original manuscripts. There's two main sets of manuscripts that are out there. And there's a group of them that are, we don't have the originals that were written by Matthew and Mark and Luke and all that. And as you know, they were hand copied. And there's two main sets of manuscripts. There's one group that we know we can date them as closest to the originals. And there's another group that's later on. There's a big pile of those. And those two manuscripts are almost identical, or piles of manuscripts are almost identical, except the ones closer to our time have words that are added. They don't change the meaning, but chances are in translation and hand copying and through verbal passing on of the scriptures, some things were added. That's why when newer translations came out, when all we had was the King James for a while, they translated from the, the, the closer, the newer, if you will, manuscript, pile of manuscripts. But when the newer man translations came out, they went back and translated from the oldest that we have, manuscripts that are closest to the original. And when all the newer translations came out, all the King James people started saying, those translations are leaving out words. No, actually, they're translating from the earlier manuscripts that didn't have those words. They didn't leave them out. Chances are the other ones were added. Let me give you an example. We're just going to chase a rabbit real quick, just for the fun of it. Um, go to John chapter 5. Sorry, John chapter 4. No, I was right. John chapter 5. I should never question my brain. John chapter 5. Somebody with an English standard version, read for us verse 4. Did you read verse 4 from the English standard version? John chapter 5, verse 4. John chapter 5. Someone in the English standard version, read verse 4 from John chapter 5, verse 4. Do you have English Standard Version? Do you have verse 4? You're reading it. <laughs> have you all noticed that your Bible doesn't have a verse 4? Yeah, but the King James translation and, and the New American Standard, they translated from the older pile. But you've noticed in your Bibles, though, your, your Bible will say verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. There is no verse 4. And then it go to verse 5. But some of your translations, 
We'll have a, the, the newer translations that have that are translated from the closer to, to the originals, manuscripts, you'll have a little note down in the bottom of your Bible or somewhere that'll say, the earliest manuscripts don't have that verse, and they'll tell you what's there. I could actually take you and show you a couple other places like that, but let me take you to one more. Go to Luke, sorry, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And look at verses 9 to the end of the chapter. Those of you that have newer translations that translated from the earlier manuscripts, do you notice that big heading they have right before that section? What does it say? Some of the earliest manuscripts don't include that section. Now, to keep from that whole big section being left out instead of just one verse, they put it in. But that's not in the earlier manuscripts. By the way, if you were to go to John chapter 7, verses 53 through 811, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery and Jesus saying, you who throw, uh, without sin throw the first stone, that story is not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, I just share that with you, so that's why a lot of us have learned to recite the Lord's Prayer. We can, we've got it memorized, but we've all been taught, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Well, that's because when we started doing all that, that was back in the day when the only real English translation we had was the King James. But as we've learned more, as we've learned more about research and study and learning the languages, some of the newer translations, they decided to not translate from that one pile that were all the same that had some things added. They went back to the ones that were closest to the original and translated from there. You understand? So, unfortunately, let me just say this as nicely as I can. Those of you that have run into those King James-only people all the years who have been antagonistic about folks, and they leave out the word blood, and they are leaving... I'm going to say this nicely. They're ignorant, not in the bad use of the word, but in the good use of the word and what it really means. They're arguing from not really understanding what the originals are, are the closest to the original manuscripts actually had. That's why, by the way, I didn't start realizing this until I was in seminary years and years ago. And when I, when I started to learn how to study Hebrew and the Greek, and we had to do homework every night of translating the original texts or the, 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 the manuscripts that we have, not the original originals, but the manuscripts into English. By the way, that's a lot of hard work. And I am not real good at a lot of hard work. But God blessed me with an incredible memory. And so instead of translating every night, I would, the homework assignments, memorize what they were in English. And back in that day, I only had the King James Bible. That's all I had. And so I would translate the, the, the homework, and I would just mainly go find a few words that I recognized, find where it was, memorize that section. So on the next day when they'd say, Jim, stand up and give us verse such and so from Exodus chapter 20, whatever. I had done my homework. I had not translated the, it into English. I had just memorized what it was in English. But when it came time for the test, it was really hard. Because they would say, your test in Hebrew is going to be from Exodus somewhere between chapter 5 and chapter 20. And we wouldn't know where. And we would show up for the test, and they would just give you the Hebrew and you had to, on that paper, 
write in your little blue book. Remember the blue books that you took tests in in college? You had to write from wherever it was and write in English, having translated it into English. My problem was I never learned how to translate it into English. So you know what I would do? I would go home and memorize Exodus chapter 5 through 20. And then when the test time came, I would take a pencil and I'd look at the Hebrew manuscript and I would, rec- I, I know that word, and I'd write in English on pen, pencil by there what it was. I know that word and I'd write what it is. And then I'd, and after a while I'd go, oh, I know what passage this is. And then I would write all the words from my memory on the manuscript paper. And then once I had done that, I would then go to the blue book and write it all out in English. That's how I passed But in doing so, because I had memorized it in the King James, I would realize, wait a minute, there are words that I've memorized that aren't here. And it began me to do a little research to find out why. Like a lot of times you'll see sometimes in the Greek, in in the the earlier manuscripts, it'll say, as Jesus walked along, it didn't say anymore. But in the King James, it would say the seashore or 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 the shoreline. It didn't change the meaning. That's where he was walking along. But in the earlier manuscripts, the words by the shore or along the seashore weren't there. And that began my study into all this whole manuscripts and translations and all that kind of stuff. And I just say to you folks, as I have done the research so far, I found the English Standard Version to be the closest to the original and readable. There are translations that are really accurate and very good word for word, but they don't flow real good. There are other translations work on being readable, but at the same time, they don't really give you accurate of what the words actually are. So, which translation is the best? I don't know. I've just found this one to be the closest, and that's what I'm teaching from, and that's why we do it. But for those of you that were following along in a different translation, you say, wait a minute, the Lord's Prayer is missing something. Actually, chances are that part was added as it was passed on. We good? All right, we chased the rabbit. Hopefully we caught it. Now, we need to remember that Jesus has been focusing in this section on the reality and the depth of man's sin. And now he's moving them forward into believing in and receiving God's power to deal with their sin. But if we realize our sin, but pretend we're righteous, we're not dealing with our sin. But being hypocrites, he says. Pretending to be something we're not. Go to Luke chapter 5. Just because God has revealed to you your sin doesn't mean that you're going to respond appropriately. In Luke chapter 5, look at verses 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Anybody know who Levi is? It's Matthew. Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, hopefully you understand the Bible is very clear. There's no one righteous. Not one. But Jesus says, the only ones that go see the doctor are the ones who realize they're sick. How many of you guys over the years, when your wife's saying, you need to go see the doctor, you're like, I'm not sick. When you know you're sick, I'm preaching to myself here. 
That's how I ended up being so long with cancer, because I'd been ignoring that it was there the whole time. Jesus is in Matthew 6 saying, don't pretend you're okay with God when you're not. Don't pretend you're okay with God when you're not. If we realize we're sick spiritually and turn to the great physician to heal us, we do this by turning to him and talking to him in prayer. But when you come to God in prayer, don't try to impress him. The passage here shows us he already knows, knows your heart better than you do, and he knows what you need before you ask. Look at Matthew 6 again, verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. There's a couple of things in this section I want to pull out. Is Jesus teaching that we should never publicly pray? How do you know this? Jesus publicly prayed. In John chapter 11, he prayed out loud and he even said, I'm, Lord, I thank you that you hear me. I know you always hear me. I just said that for the benefit of the people here. He publicly prayed. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, you don't have to turn there. The Bible talks about how we're to lift up holy hands in prayer in church. The Bible teaches that public praying is necessary. He's saying when you pray in public, remember, do your good deeds before men that they may see your, your good deeds and glorify your father. Don't do your praying in public in order to be impressive to the people around you. And secondly, don't think that when you pray to God that you need to use a whole lot of words. He already knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I'm going to do something real quick along that line. Jump over to chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. Go to chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. Jesus says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you eat, or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, and, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he'll not much, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know God, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, he then, of course, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. We're going to break that passage down later on. But what I want you to see is later on, Jesus is going to deal with the fact that he knows what our physical needs are. What I want to do tonight as we go back to the section we're studying in Matthew 6 on prayer, and as we start to move into the template for prayer, what we call the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer, is I want you to understand that as much as this prayer and teaching on prayer applies to daily prayer now as Christians, the first and foremost purpose of Jesus' teaching on prayer was to get them to realize their physical need or spiritual need. Spiritual need. And you're going to see that. Everything we're looking at applies to our life after salvation as well. This model for prayer will serve you well for the rest of your life. But as you're about to see, as we break this down, God's purpose was originally 
as he's preaching this for the first time, as Jesus is teaching the model for prayer, to get them to realize, all right, I've just shown you your, your sin. You thought you were okay. I'm now letting you realize you're not keeping the law like you thought you are. And now I want to move you toward the power of God to take care of this. And in order to do that, you need to turn to the Father and talk to the Father for Him to meet your spiritual need. Because hopefully you've now come to realize you're spiritually poor and spiritually bankrupt. But when you pray, don't be like those hypocrites. Don't think that's prayer. Those hypocrites that stand on the corner and want everybody to see how they're praying. They're praying before men. They're not praying to God. Oh, but when you go to the secret place, if you will. Remember, does anybody remember, remember where the secret place is from last week's study? Our heart. Good for you, Jeremy. The secret place is our heart where God's trying to get to. Don't think that you need to say all these fancy words in order to get God to hear you. He already knows what you need before you ask. Is he talking about physical needs? Yes, but later. He's really talking about our spiritual need. So look again now at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he goes on and says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not, do not forget, uh, forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, we won't have time tonight to break this all down. It's going to take us a couple of weeks. But what I want to do in just reading that to you right now is point out. And did anybody notice how much of this model prayer is dealing with our sin problem? And forgiveness and the debt that we have and the fact that the enemy is out to get us? Jesus is teaching in the model prayer our spiritual need and how we need to turn to God for that spiritual need to be met. Not only for salvation but also on a daily basis. So what we're going to do is I'm going to show you real quickly that the type of prayers that God responds to are prayers that are honest and humble. The type of prayers that God responds to are not the ones that have flowery words, not the ones that keep saying, Father, 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 Father. Have you ever heard people pray like that sometimes? Oh, Father, thank you, Father, for what you do, Father. And it, I think he knows you know he's your father. Just talk to him honestly and be humble when you do it. Go to Luke chapter 18. Look at verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple area to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, he prayed this way, thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus told this story trying to hit which audience? Which audience? 
not just the Pharisees, but those who thought that they were righteous in themselves. Folks, I've been a pastor long enough. I've dealt with enough people in the church. You know, there's a lot of church people that act like that. They see all those heathens out there, and I'm better than that. Oh, we talked about that last week. Don't get sucked into that vortex. Don't think you're okay. Keep that same humility, because that's the kind of prayer that God answers. Go to James chapter 4, verse 6. And as you're turning there, keep in mind, Jesus told a story about two men that both prayed in public. And he didn't say that the one that prayed with a humble attitude was wrong for praying in public. There's nothing wrong with public prayer. The Bible teaches it. So just make sure that when you do use public prayer, you're not praying to impress other people, but you're praying to impress God. And what is he impressed with? I just gave you those two words. Honesty and humility. James chapter 4, verse 6. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How many of you have thought over the years, because Satan lied to you and you believed it, that the preacher or somebody else would do a better job of talking to God than you? You don't know how many times I have had people say, but pastor, if you pray, God will listen. Oh, Satan led you a line of baloney, folks. They don't know me well. Thank you very much, Susan. But you're right. They probably don't know me well. But at the same time, folks, don't think for a second that someone could talk to God better for you. God wants you to come to him. God wants you to come to him. Oh, and some of you have been taught that you pray to a saint because God's really busy. Oh, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. He's there for us. He said, it's good for you that I'm going away because if I go away, then I can come and be with you, and I'll be with you always. Folks, you can go directly to God because of the, the, Jesus Christ, right, directly to the throne of grace. Don't think for a second that someone else would do a better job of asking God on your behalf. If you're in Christ Jesus, that way's been opened. Just go to him. Be honest. He already knows. Be humble. So, before we can begin to break down Jesus' model prayer, though, or template for prayer, as I like to call it, we need to look at a section of Scripture in Luke to learn some more about what God's looking for in prayer. So go to Luke chapter 11. We're going to begin to break down the model prayer tonight a little bit, but I really need to take some time tonight to take you to Luke chapter 11, to another place where Jesus teaches on prayer, to kind of lay the foundation of what God's looking for in prayer. Some more about that here. Luke chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 13. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his sons ask for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? By the way, that's another one of those how much more passages we're going to be studying on the cruise ship coming up in November. God's not only looking for honesty and humility when he, we come to Him in prayer. He's looking for faith. Remember Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In this passage in Luke, we see the disciples coming to Jesus to ask him to teach them to pray after watching him again in prayer. Notice how Jesus modeled prayer for them. Jesus didn't have lessons on prayer. Jesus did not get up one morning and say, okay, guys, you're in a three-year program of discipleship, and today's lesson is on prayer. Jesus lived prayer. He modeled it as he prayed all the times, and the disciples could see the things that God would do when Jesus would come out of his times of prayer. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. But did you notice how they asked him? This jumped off the page at me one time when I was studying this. Notice how they ask him. It's almost as if they are afraid that he'll say no. So they point out that John taught his disciples. Do you see it? Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. You remember when your kids used to ask you for something and they were afraid you were going to say no? So they would say, Susie's parents are letting her. You remember that? We're going to reread this with that mindset. I believe this whole passage explodes with understanding if you understand the context and the way in which I believe the disciples asked him. First of all, is this the exact same account of the Sermon on the Mount's teaching on prayer? It's obviously not the same. Here On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is on that mount. He's been teaching. He gives the model for prayer. This here is later. He's been praying. By the way, let me ask you a question. Do you teach your kids about prayer or do you pray? You see what I'm saying? We all say, you guys need to pray. Do they see you pray? That'll have way more power than you teaching them about prayer. The disciples see Jesus praying. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. But I, I think they were afraid he would say no. And they'd say, John taught his disciples. Jesus then recounts what he had earlier taught in Matthew 6 on the model for prayer. But has anybody noticed how it read really quick and different? It's almost like he gave the Reader's Digest Cliff Notes version of the prayer, right? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And we forgive other ones indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. He left a lot of that earlier prayer off. It's almost like he's in a hurry to get to the story. You remember that model I gave you for prayer? But then he quickly goes and he tells the story about a man who goes to his friend at midnight and says, hey, friend, you know, I had someone come to visit me and I have nothing to give him. And hospitality was huge in that culture. Could you lend me some bread so I could have something to give this friend of mine that's come to my house? And the guy on the inside says, it's midnight, dude. Uh, the doors are already locked. We're all in bed. The kids are in bed with us. The house is shut down. And then the scripture goes on and says, he doesn't get up and give him what he needs because he's his friend. But he does it because of his impudence. Niggy's Bible says importunity. Can you explain to us what that is? Be honest. No. Very few of us know what importunity means. Some of your translations don't just say impudence or importunity. Some of your translations say persistence. Some will say boldness. 
I'm going to add another word. I'm going to add another word tonight. Shamelessness. Let me illustrate to you what I think Jesus is teaching here in this story. Imagine that you're broke down at two in the morning. You have a cell phone, but you don't have AAA. Your wife or husband is home in bed with a sick kid. and can't come help you. Who are you going to call? But you're not going to call just any friend. You're going to call a friend. But your brain's going to go through the Rolodex of your friends, correct? You're going to think of the friend that would not only be able to help you, but glad to help you at 2 in the morning. Because you got friends that you could call, but you really don't want to call them because you know they're going to complain about how you take care of your car. And I told you that you need to keep oil in it. You're going to call other friends, and you're not going to call them because you know they're going to, you owe them now. I'll do it, but you owe me. There are other friends you might call, but you're probably not going to call them because they'll tell everybody what a mess up you are. Your brain will go through the Rolodex of the friend that you can call who would not only be able to help you, but glad to do it. Someone you could ask with boldness, impudence, or without shame. Call John. There we go. But here's the deal. You remember when you're in the grocery store and the kids would ask for the candy as they would go through the register aisle? And they'd ask shamelessly. I, I could ask you, your financial person, accountant, and all that stuff. I could ask you for money. But I could ask with shame. You know, I'm really kind of embarrassed to ask you, but you mind if you lend me a few bucks. Or if I saw you as someone that not only was able but be willing, I could ask without shame. I could go boldly. You see what I'm saying? Jesus says the kind of prayer that the Father responds to is not just honest and humble, but it's also someone that comes to the Father boldly because you know the heart of the person you're going to. He's not only able, he's willing. So I say, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. I mean, come on, guys. If your kid asks you for a fish, are you going to give him a snake? If he asks you for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to good give gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? Oh, look at the passage. Good gifts. Keep reading. If you, verse 13, if you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? Oh, the context is still salvation. The context is still their spiritual need. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, could you teach us to pray? We're afraid you're going to say no. John taught his disciples. And Jesus said, the thing I got to deal with first is the fact that you don't understand the heart of the person that you're asking and that you're talking to. Let me show you what the Bible says about this. Go with me to Luke chapter, sorry, go to Matthew 9 to start with. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Look at verses 27 through 29. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able 
to do this. They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. It's another whole message for another time, but it's interesting how Jesus tells them, Don't tell anybody. They go tell everybody. I'm going to touch on that, by the way, on my sermon coming up this Sunday at First Baptist Land. I'll be preaching here again on Sunday, and we're actually going to reference this story in a little bit on that, on that message. But let me just, the commercial's over. Back to the, back to the lesson. Jesus comes and says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? First off, you have to believe in his power. You've got to believe in his power. But there's more to it than that. Go to Luke chapter 5. Look at verses 12 through 13. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, if you, if you desire, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Oh, that's awesome. By the way, what, what was something the lepers hadn't had in a long, long time? Physical contact. Jesus reaches out and touches him, and he says, I will. I desire be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. Folks, Jesus is teaching, not only am I able, I'm willing. Now, we've got to go down a road here for a second. If Jesus is able and willing, how come we can't just ask any time for him to heal us, and we're always healed? If we really believe he's able, and we believe he's willing, how come we just can't go to him and say, heal me then? Ah... Sometimes, even though he's able and willing for his greater purposes that we may not understand at the time, his answer is no. But when you pray and you ask and you think he's able and you believe that he was willing, but he says no, and then you think, well, maybe he doesn't want me to be healed. and Maybe he's upset with me. Oh, you, you, you really don't know who it is you're talking to, do you? When you come to him in prayer, you need to come to the one that you know cares for you, cares for you. And if his answer is no, then that is the best thing for you. Isn't that how Jesus prayed to the Father? As he was right before the cross, he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And as he prayed three times that way, and the father's answer was obviously no, it was no before the foundation of the world. He got up and calmly told his disciples, let's go. And he went boldly to the cross, humbly and willingly to the cross, because he knew that his father loved him. He stood before Pilate after that prayer and said, when Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to have you put to death or the power to have you released? He said, you wouldn't have any power over me unless my father gave it to you. Right now, I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at him, and he's in control and I've asked him to take this away. He said, I'm going to go through it, so I'm good. How many of you have been tempted to walk away from following Jesus because his answer was no, and it caused you to question his heart for you? Oh, he says, if you guys who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Go to Mark chapter 9. Gets a little deeper here. Go to Mark chapter 9, look at verses 14 through 29. 
Mark chapter 9, verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes are arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and to Jesus and greeted him. And he looked and he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and it foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that awesome? That's an honest, humble prayer. I'm coming to you, Jesus. I asked your disciples, but you were up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and, and they weren't, and you weren't here. So I asked them, and they tried. They couldn't cast him out. And now you show up, and I'm asking you. I believe you're able to do it, but i got to be honest with you. I'm still struggling a little bit. How many of you understand that prayer? I do. I believe. But I don't. I struggle sometimes. Help me. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Oh, some of your translations that translated from the older manuscripts or newer manuscripts say fasting and prayer. There you go. Prayer and fasting. Now, I don't have time to get into this in too much detail, but let me just say this to you. There are some situations that God's power will only be revealed in your life when you learn how to walk with him deeply. We, we've unfortunately taken this passage and turned it into, we really need God to do something, so we're going to call a time of fasting and prayer. Have you ever heard that? We're going to call a time of fasting and prayer because we really need God to move. But Jesus didn't fast. And if you look closely, Jesus didn't pray. He just told him, come out. So, oh no, it's not that he's God. He's, remember, he's on this earth just like we are. So what was Jesus saying? What he's saying was, if you're going to have this kind of power to deal with this level of spiritual warfare, you need to live a life of fasting and prayer. Not just example, I live a life that is walking close with the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Live a life that is constantly saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Walking with God. A lot of times over the years, as I've been a pastor, especially in my traveling ministry, I'll get to a church and they'll say, Pastor, do you need to go into the, the pastor's office and spend some time to get ready for the sermon today? And I'm like, no, I'm good. But don't you need to prepare? I've been preparing my whole life. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. But how many preachers say, I need to go get ready? 
I need to go get focused. That's not what the Bible teaches. Did Peter spend Saturday night working on his sermon before Pentecost? No, he was filled with the Spirit, under the control of the Spirit, and he started to preach. Folks, let me just tell you, there's part of this prayer that goes deeper than just, I believe he's able and I believe he's willing. Sometimes he's going to take you down a deeper road before you have that level of power. That's all I can really, for the sake of time, go there. Let's go now back to Matthew chapter 6. As much as Jesus' template for prayer will guide us in praying after salvation, keep in mind that Jesus' first attempting to get his audience to turn to God in prayer for salvation. You with me? Remember the context. That's what he's doing. He's teaching this model for prayer to bring them to understand their need to pray to God for salvation. And he starts in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, prayed like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, Jesus reminds them that the one that they should be seeking to get the attention of is their father who's where? Uh, go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from who? Your Father who's in heaven. The one who you really need to be going to is the one who has the power to take care of your need. Remember the old Bible story in the Old Testament of the widow who had this son that the prophet told her, you're going to be having a child, and, and she said, don't, don't, don't get my hopes up. If you're lying to me, I'm going to be mad. And he said, no, you're gonna give you, I'm going to give you a miracle. And she hadn't had a child, and she does. And then later on, the child comes to her and says, man, mama, my head hurts. And he dies in her arms. Remember the story where the Bible says she took him and laid him on the bed that she had prepared for the prophet whenever he came by? She went down, and she said to her husband, hey, could you give me a servant and a mule? I need to do something. And he says, everything all right? She said, everything's all right. Her son just died in her arms, and she laid him upstairs. The husband says, everything all right? Everything's fine. Goes down. She starts heading to go find the prophet. The prophet sees her coming from afar, recognizes who it is. He goes, but the Spirit of God hadn't told me why she's coming. He sends his servant to go find out why she's coming. The servant greets her and says, everything all right? She says, everything's fine. Everything's all right. When she gets to the prophet, she falls on it at his feet and starts crying. Didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up? She's dying. Why? Why did she tell the husband everything's all right? And the servant, everything's all right. But then, fall at the feet of the prophet. There's a lot to learn there. She saved her energy for the one that could do something about it. Folks, how many of us have been turning to the wrong people? Don't turn to your pastor. He didn't closer to God than you. He might be further away. Just ask Susan. Go to the Father. Go to our Father who's in heaven. That's the one that has the power. That's the one who's able and willing and can take care of your need. The first thing he's going to deal with is your spiritual condition. It's our Father who art in heaven. But in coming to him, we also must realize that he's what? Well, according to Matthew 6 here, look at verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. By the way, do you know what that word means? Holy. 
Hagios Santo. I love that. Santo's name means holy. Spanish Santo. That's why we sing holy, holy, holy. In Spanish, they sing Santo, Santo, Santo. It's Italian. Sorry, did I say Spanish? Sorry, Italian. I get those mixed up all the time. Go to Proverbs chapter 9. Go to Proverbs chapter 9. Look at verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Jesus, when he was on the earth, said, don't be afraid of man that after killing the body can do no more. The one you need to be afraid of is the one who, after the body's been killed, has the authority to throw your body into hell, your soul into hell. By the way, who's that? Good for you. I'm so glad you said God. You'd be amazed how many churches around this country say Satan. Satan doesn't have the authority to throw you into hell. Satan's getting thrown into hell himself. The one who controls life and death, spiritual life and spiritual death, the one who has the keys to death in Hades, according to Revelation chapter 1, is Jesus, is God. And Jesus said something interesting. He said, don't be afraid of man who, after killing you, can't do anymore, unless he's an undertaker, but that's another whole story. But uh, be afraid of the one who, after your body's been killed, has the authority to throw your soul into hell. That's who you should fear. The knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. God actually wants us to understand when we come to him for our spiritual need to be taken care of that he's holy. And what is Jesus that's laid out for them already in the earlier part of this sermon? We're not. We're not. He is. Go to Isaiah chapter 29. By the way, this truth has been all through the Old Testament all along. Go to Isaiah chapter 29. Look at verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me, quote unquote, is a commandment taught by men. Do you hear what he's saying? They honor me with their mouth and with their lips, but their hearts far from me. Their quote unquote fear of me is just something they've been taught. They really don't fear me because if they did, they'd realize my holiness and their sinfulness. Jump over in that same chapter to verses 22 through 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham, Concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to what? Understanding. Knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Here he's talking about the redemption of Israel at the end of the tribulation period when Israel, all Israel that's left is saved. In that day, they're going to see me as holy. And what does the prophecy say? They're going to look on him whom they pierced. And they're going to grieve and mourn. They're going to understand you're holy and I'm not. By the way, for those of us who remember our psychology training, there's a lot of different reactions to fear. There's the fight and flight. Remember that? There's the fight 
reaction. And I could take you and show you in the Old Testament scripture where uh, uh, that nations saw the nation of Israel coming and they were afraid, but their reaction was to fight. It didn't do them any good because they were fighting God. Oh, when Adam and Eve were afraid in the garden, what did they do? Flight. They hid. God doesn't want when you understand his holiness and have the fear of him for you to run. He doesn't want you to fight. He wants you to not be like the deer in the headlights who doesn't do anything. He wants you to do what? Fall down before him humbly and honestly and say, I'm a sinner and you're holy. And the only way I can be made righteous is if you give it to me. Wasn't that Peter's reaction when Jesus did the miraculous catch a fish in his boat? He said, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, it's okay. I'm going to do something with you and turn you into a fisher of men. Folks, a knowledge of the Holy One, a knowledge of the Holy One, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. Go to Luke chapter 1. Listen to Mary's prayer in the Magnificat. Listen to it. In Luke chapter 1, look at verses 46 through 55. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my what? Oh, Mary was a sinner. If you're, not, if you're sinless, you don't need a savior. Mary wasn't sinless. Amazing lady, and God says, word even says that many people will praise her for years. She should be remembered as amazing. But she needed a savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And what? Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's prayer was, I rejoice in God my Savior. He's holy. and He responds to the humble. And his mercy is for those who fear him. Jesus has just laid out in the Sermon on the Mount the sinful condition of everyone. And he says, but now, don't think you're okay with God by pretending to be righteous when you know you're not. That's the hypocrites. They do that. They pretend to be something they know they're not. So when you pray, don't pray to be seen by other people. Pray to the one who knows your heart. Oh, and don't think you need to impress him with your many words. He already knows what you need. And you know what you and I need? Salvation. We need his forgiveness of our sins. And he begins to teach that in this model for prayer. Uh, write this down and look at it later on. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-17. through 17. That's just a section of scripture. 1 Peter 3, verses 8-17. through 17, That talks about how we need to live a daily life of acknowledging his holiness. Not only do we need to understand His holiness in order to be saved, the Bible teaches that we need to live a daily life acknowledging His holiness. The God of the universe, this Holy One, now dwells within us, and we need to live daily in our lives remembering that He's here. Some of us that, and I'm talking to all of us, that have struggled with sin, a lot of times we think we can do stuff when people aren't around because other people won't know. 
But we forget that Jesus is with us at all times. And he's there. Now again, notice how Jesus' focus is on the people's spiritual condition in this prayer. Now I'm going to skip over your kingdom come. We'll deal with that next week when we come back together. Uh, we'll deal with your kingdom come then next week. But what I want to do in the time we have left, in the five minutes we have left, I actually, ah, we don't have time in five minutes. I think we're gonna, I'm going to let you out early tonight, five minutes, because what I have to do next takes too, too much time. Let's just go back and look, and we'll close with this. Go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll go into that in great detail next week. Give us this day our what? Next, I want you to study on your own between now and next week. I'm going to give you the passages. Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And John chapter 6, verses 25 through 59. John 6, 25 through 59. That'll get you ready for where we're going to go. Because I'm going to show you when Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. We've read that for years of, God, <laughs> I need Panera bread. No, he's not talking about our physical need. Later on, he deals with that. Remember in chapter 6, later on, God knows you need food. He knows you need clothing. What's the daily bread he's pointing to here? Let me, let me ask again. Who is the daily bread he's talking here? You're going to go see that he, in Exodus, the story of the manna and how they were to gather it daily. That's Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and John 6, 25 through, through, through uh, 59. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he's just fed the 5,000 and all these people start following him now because they're getting free buffets. And he comes to him and he says, you're only following me because you got fed. Don't work for food that doesn't last very long. Work for the eternal food. And they said, well, Moses gave us bread from heaven. What are you going to give us? And he said, Moses, first of all, didn't give you that bread from heaven. My father did. And second of all, I am the bread from heaven. And we're going to dive into that. I want you to see this model for prayer, as much as it applies to our daily life, he was showing them their need of salvation, and he was pointing them to Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread is who? Jesus. And he loves you, and I love you, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.